Before we get started, I just wanted to give a content warning. Not that I assume most people listen to stories about music with their kids around, but all the same, there's some language and content in this episode that some listeners might find upsetting. Bear that in mind. Would you mind telling me about the show at from like six years ago down the street? Yeah, um, I was setting up a show with some old-school Detroit noise dudes. When we showed up, uh, the owner was there instead of the doorman. And he was just upset because he was there on, like, a Tuesday night. So what ended up happening was is uh, two bands played, and he came up to me, and he said, the show's over. And I said, well, there's still two bands to play. And he goes, I don't care. The show's over. And I was like... The show's been booked for two months. Like, just because you want to go home and, like, jerk off into a Kleenex. Or whatever it is that you fucking do. That has nothing to do with me. And he got upset, and I was like, well, listen, dude. Like, how about the last two bands play at the exact same time? So that's what we did. Um, Warmth and Two Dead Sluts collaborated. It lasted about 15 seconds, and the owner came over and kicked a table with everyone's gear on it. So the only logical thing for me to do as a Bostonian, and I have pride being a Bostonian, is I just looked at this guy and I was like, I don't care how big he is or how Italian he is. I'm going to wind up and I'm going to punch this guy right in the fucking face. And what happened? That guy hit me back. I I lost a little bit of time there. He's a lot bigger than me. Uh, clocks went still. Um, I kind of woke up. I was on the ground, and he was smashing everyone's gear. Cops came in. They put me in a car. They, you know, told me to leave and blah blah blah. Is that the only time cops have been called on you? No. Not even. Close. You're listening to Stories About Music, a podcast on the subjects of music, journalism, and memories, and how the line between those three things is often not as clear as I'd hoped. My name is Brendan Maddox, and this is Story About Music number eight, Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise? It's nighttime. Cars pass by on Massachusetts Avenue, seen out the front window of Weirdo Records in Cambridge. A few young men in their 20s sit on the floor of the small storefront, waiting as Crank Sturgeon sets up in a corner. Mm. Cool. So is, is, do you think this is our, our show? Shall we, uh, shall we wait? Or? I think, what time is it? It's not 8.30. It's probably most of our show. Okay. <laughs> Let me turn that off. Not that, not that it. Four, four, I, four is a wonderful audience. I've yeah. played for two. One of them was my brother, who never saw me before that point. Really? And it Unfeftable and I had some very bizarre sexual ritual in front of my brother. <laughs> 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 Involving instant uh, powdered milk and a plastic poster from 1970 of this naked woman holding a stuffed animal. And I had a penis helmet at the time. But, all right, well, I will perform for you. Hello, my name is Crank Sturgeon, everybody. Hello. <laughs> Hello. 
and uh, I we we could do a a, a performance where um, I have everybody uh, sing introductions of themselves to each other. So oh, if you want, great. if you want to do that, we can do that. <laughs> Everyone up on your feet. Okay. okay. Hello, my name is Craig Sturgeon. All at once now. And I am Brendan Maddox. Hi, Brendan Maddox. My name is Greg. It's a pleasure to meet you. Have a really firm handshake. And this man in the corner. What's your name? Andrew. Another Andrew. 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 Brandon. Angela. Wow, we're nearly phonies. And phonies. All right. Thank you, everybody. Crank sits down behind his instruments. A few tape recorders. A sharpie and a loudspeaker full of tacks and jelly beans. First piece, um, oh, my brand new fish helmet, so I can lose even more water to my body. There we go. First piece is improvisations with the letter D. Uh, delirious, delightful, delicious, dumb, dumbfounded, dimwit, diplodocus. He's wearing a black garbage bag over his head adjusted so that his face and white goatee peek out through the hole that he's cut into it. Dude ranch. Dick. Doofus. On either side of the bag are two enormous fish eyes, drawn on cardstock with marker. I'm here tonight reporting a story about a couple of loosely associated experimental musicians from Boston. A story whose meaning is starting to exceed my grasp. How would you describe Crank Sturgeon? In in uh, in a sentence or a... I have absolutely no idea. Just okay, how would um, you describe the experience of being crank sturgeon? Well, it's uh, it's it's not a party, um, but it is. So <laughs> it is a party. <laughs> it's it's funny because there's uh, you know, I've I've survived for a while through the the, the many phases of experimental music. What, um, what do you mean by the many phases? The many phases. I mean, the, the, you'd go to a show in in 1996 in a basement in Alston and. It was like a tough guy scene. He was sitting on the floor, like Indian style, and, yep. a, and a dude like looking at his belly button going, Yeah, yep. <laughs> very true. And so Angela Sawyer, the owner of Weirdo, jumps in. She and Crank know each other going back to the 90s, when they were the beginning of the path that has led to the three of us standing in a circle in her record store. What's sort of the trick to, I guess, growing old with grace within the experimental community? Oh, that's a really fun question <laughs> because um, I'm, I'm still figuring it out. I think, did you want to say something? I, well, I feel like no one, when I was 20 mm-hmm. or 18 and I met people like who were much older than me, it never occurred to me to look at myself from their point of view, ever. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> ever. Yeah, that, that's very, very true. <laughs> and so it, I only ever thought, oh, that person is as old as my mom and my dad but they're doing what I want instead of what my parents are doing. Once you get to be, I'm uh, in my 40s, then is when you're like, oh, I've been there so many times and they have no idea where I am. So that's when you feel start to feel marginalized mm-hmm. a little bit. It's, it's really different than I imagined when I, because I never thought about it very hard. I was just like, oh, I want that. I want to live on that island of misfit toys, be in that little corner. The TV in Shane Broderick's living room is on mute. A weatherman gestures to a map of New England in shades of blue and purple. At the top of the screen is a red banner with the words blizzard warning. It's mid-afternoon. 
Shane and I are drinking cans of beer that he brought out of the fridge. I mean, I, I, I was always playing music and stuff since I was a little kid. Even when I was like 12 years old, I'd be up like late at night smoking weed, messing with drum machines and stuff <laughs> like that. So, Now, where'd you get your hands on drum machines at age 12? Uh, Christmas present. Christmas present? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I had my uh, beginner guitar and a, a drum machine. You know, once I was like 15 and stuff, I got a job. I started collecting equipment. I thought I'd make a career out of it, but I ended up just being like a lifelong mailroom guy. Uh, yeah. When he was 19 years old, Shane dropped out of college in Florida and moved back to Massachusetts. He started making abrasive music with a friend that he knew while working at a gas station in high school. We worked together, and every time we finished a shift, it would be like a hundred and something dollars under. Yeah. And I was like, this, what the fuck, this kid, man. <laughs> they called themselves Two Dead Sluts, One Good Fuck. We joked around on the internet about how we were going to start the most extreme band ever, and how the first record we would just put a bunch of contact mics in a blender and throw a rabbit in it. <laughs> and whatever it sounded like, that was the first LP. Which we never did. But what instead came out of it was... I stuck my boner in a blender. <laughs> which was a demo that we did, which... It wasn't even me and him, it was like me and him kind of like coaching 10 or 11 of our friends. <laughs> we were just trying to make like circus music with, with grindcore parts. We got like reviewed in something like Metal Maniacs, and that was like a magazine that I used to read. Ten years old, my mother would drag me to CVS to like grab things that I would sit in the aisle and look at pictures of like Slayer looking sexy and stuff like that. So I'm like, oh shit, I'm in this magazine now. A after that point, me and him decided to keep the name and go forward with it. Shane is in his early 30s, and he still makes music, although Two Dead Sluts hasn't been active in a few years. He also still plays shows, even though he doesn't really enjoy it. I don't know, I think it's just like nerves. How does that It was work easier with... With the other guys. With the other guys, because it was more like we were like a wrecking crew. <laughs> you know, get blind, snake, and drunk, and it didn't really matter what happened. Right. So what would like one night at like a TDS show end up being like? It would start off sloppy and then I wouldn't remember the end of it. <laughs> When you guys got on stage, there seemed to be there seems to be like sort of a pattern. You guys start with like harsh feedback, stuff getting knocked over. There was definitely a lot of feedback and there was definitely a lot of things knocked over. They were also usually naked. I think we were probably more performative over substance, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. In those early shows, like we were just using five or six microphones, a bunch of effects pedals running back into each other, and just kind of like whatever sounds were happening were happening. People like really liked it, found it very entertaining, and then the 
flip side, we had people picket our shows, feminists thinking that we were like um, promoting sexism. Just that band name wipes off at least 70% of the population from even giving you a chance. It's probably a higher percentage than that. So the choice of the band name then, was it to... It, it was kind of like a, a, a filtering thing and it was also like an inside joke that just kept going and going. Mm-hmm. And no one was really in on it, but us. The band wasn't supposed to last 10 years either. We were just trying to put on a good show, make extreme sounds. It really, it might look forced and everything, but it was actually pretty natural for the, the people involved in the band. Why was it so natural? I don't know. Do you think it's, it's a like question for a therapist? <laughs> I don't know. I sip for my can of beer, even though it's empty. Shane plays with the pull tab on his. On the television, the weatherman's predicting that a foot of snow is going to cover Boston over the next two days. Shane, still dressed in the scrubs from the hospital where he works, says, I gotta go to work tomorrow, no matter what. There's a half-open ironing board against a wall. In the bathroom, the sink is plastered with shavings. Next to the unflushed toilet sits a stack of musical notation paper. I stare at it, because it says something specific about the person I'm speaking to. I can't figure out what or why. If you could maybe like point me in the right direction of some good people in the area to talk to, or... I think you should definitely talk to uh, Ron and Lowell. Mm-hmm. He runs Triple R Records. He's kind of America's greatest living noise artist, like a godfather type. I walk out of Shane's front door into Ray Robinson's cafe in downtown Lowell. Ron Lassard waits for me in a yellow booth along the window. Through the rain on the glass, the world outside is blurred into different shades of gray. Where should we begin? Say today is Wednesday. I'll be eating lunch. I'm almost through with my fries. Soon I'll be starting on my burgers. It's fucking awesome. Ron is the noise expert one of the engines that drove America's experimental music scene since the 80s. He's released about a thousand recordings on Triple R's in-house label. I was the source, you know, and everybody who ever learned how to play a tape backwards or make feedback decided to send me a demo. And man, you know, I heard so much crap like you wouldn't believe, you know. Think of every, every form of music ever in the history of the world. I mean, rock and roll bands. How many rock and roll bands are awesome and how many suck beyond belief? Ron himself first got into noise music around 1981, after he left the Air Force and came home to Lowell. There was a, uh, a mail-order outlet out of Colorado called Aeon, A-E-O-N. When I got their catalog, I couldn't believe the stuff they had listed. I knew all these bands I've never, ever, ever, ever heard of, ever. I mean, they had, like, you know, White House albums and New Blockaders and, you know, Maurizio Bianchi. And it's like, who the fuck? these guys, you know? So I started buying that stuff, and it's like, whoa, this is what I've been looking for all these years, you know? The guy that ran it became a, um, what do you call it, one of those survivalist kind of guys, you know, living out in the woods with his gun kind of thing, you know? And uh, he lost, he dropped out of the scene completely, and uh, actually, he eventually sold me his entire inventory. I bought him out. Yeah, yeah. 
His store, Triple R Records, opened in 1984. And when I first, first opened, I tried to specialize in like, you know, all the really weird imports, you know, bizarre bands and all that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, but at the same time, I knew enough to know that pedestrians, your average everyday person, has no freaking clue. You know, they just want to listen to a Barry Manilow or whatever the fuck they like. After Aeon, I was the guy that was like thoroughly, thoroughly obsessed and I just like devoted myself to it. Day in, day out noise, all, all day, morning, noon and night, listening to tapes, you know, checking out bands all day, every day, you know. I mean, there was at that point in time, heavy metal wasn't heavy enough. Punk rock wasn't extreme enough. Noise did it for me. It really did. And welcome to my obsession. Ron started performing noise music himself under the name Emil Bolio. Footage from the 90s, like this, show him using vinyl records and their accessories as instruments. This is one way to look at noise music. Instead of using something like a trombone or a tuba, a guitar or a piano, you take whatever you can find, whatever object appeals to you, and you refashion it into something expressive. The screeching noise you hear is coming from a modified turntable, which Ron stands behind with a goofy look on his face, pretending to polish records. From that perspective, noise becomes a positive, creative philosophy, and I can see how people get so obsessed with it. You know, a lot of people, they can't play guitar, they can't sing, they can't play the drums. You're twisting knobs and screaming your brains out, you know, getting out that primal scream, whatever it is, you know. It's, on, it's inside everybody. Speaking of which, what's your personal experience with it? What do you mean? Well, you said it was, you just said that noise music is like this very personal experience of getting stuff out. Right. How did you get stuff out through Emil Bolio? Uh, you know, I'm not sure what you, where you're leading, uh, as far as like recording or getting the name out or? Well, like in terms of like, uh, why did you start Emil Bolia? You know, I just wasn't any good at sports. <laughs> The uncomfortable moment sticks in the back of my mind for the rest of our interview. Though Ron is eloquent and energetic, as I was warned that he would be, he's also a little guarded. And maybe that's because I showed up looking for someone to answer criticisms of noise music or its culture, which he brushes off with a very simple... Lately? Lately I'm out of it. You know, I really am. I'm well, just like, you know... When was the last time you were here? Seven years ago. Seven years ago. <laughs> So let's go back seven years, because this is, this is something that keeps coming up in interviews with people, is that seven years ago, things were very... Uh, active. Active. Very wicked, active. wicked, wicked active. What's happened? I mean, the bands that are making noise today sound like the bands that were making noise 10 years ago. They sound like the bands that were making noise 20 years ago. You know, they sound exactly the same. They're doing the same freaking feedback. They're still screaming the same lyrics, you know. I mean, it's just the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, which is fine. You know, punk rock exists for a reason, you know. Um, the young people, they're, they're totally into it because it's new to them. It's like, like, wow, 
wow, this is freaking awesome. These guys are screaming their brains out. They're talking about killing people. It's freaking awesome, you know? But then 10 years later, it's the same thing over again, you know? I mean, do you want to listen to that same band for a freaking 10 years in a row? I mean, do you still want to hear Aerosmith? No, you don't, you know? <laughs> Ron seems tired in a way that I've not seen before. As we talk, I get a sense that I'm recording his exit interview. I did what I had to do. I did what I had to do and just to keep doing it because somebody else wants me to? Wrong freaking reason. That's how bands start to suck, you know? And uh, so fuck that, you know? I mean, there was a time where I just couldn't wait to get on stage and scream my brains out. It's like, well, I mean, you know, have you ever had a girlfriend? You know, I mean, you make out with her. It's like, it's the best. And then one day, you don't want to make out with her anymore. It's no different. It's been... Seven years. I, I stopped performing seven years ago. March of 06. It's now March 013. Yeah. It's seven freaking years now that I have I've stopped. All I can say is, you know, it's like chances are you're not doing the same thing you were doing seven years ago. And I'm willing to bet seven years from now, you're not gonna be doing the exact same thing you're doing now. People just change, they move on. Been there, done that. Why do it again, you know? The scene dissolves, and it's only in the darkness afterwards that I think of the question that I wish I'd asked. This isn't just something Ron was doing. It was the thing. And what can you do when you lose touch with that? place of not knowing. To be in a place of uncertainty is excellent. Even if it is uncomfortable. But I, honestly, I don't want a comfortable life. I'm sitting in a cozy loft apartment in Salem while my friend Samira chats with a small Alish woman in her late 40s named Andrea Pensado. Well, if you feel it at 20, you cannot imagine at 40s. <laughs> I just taste it and I'm like, wow, like I'm feeling all the sugar and I'm, you know, I, I it's in chips and I ate 
a lot of chips. <laughs> it was a bad, <laughs> bad idea with, sh- with beer, you know, not good. Samira is working on her own documentary about experimental music. Andrea first got interested in music when she was a little girl, growing up in Buenos Aires. Uh, I was living in an apartment building, and a friend of mine, uh, she started taking piano lessons. She showed me her music, and I saw the notation, uh, and I was fascinated. Honestly, I was not aware of such a rich experimental music background until when I was in Poland. She left Argentina to study composition in Krakow as an adult. But the music that she composed, on paper at least, was so complex that she often had trouble finding people to play it. Like, I don't want to be just writing for the drawer. Andrea likes to think about timbre, the color of sound, what differentiates one instrument from another. To ring out really interesting timbre with traditional instruments, you've got to do some out there stuff. And then Andrea went to the Audio Art Festival, a meeting of the minds held in Krakow every November. The festival focuses on objects used to produce sound, musical instruments, but also computers. Inspired, Andrea taught herself to program and began using electronics in her work. So I create a a Wi-Fi just for myself to avoid latency. You can work with any Wi-Fi to connect. So my controllers are an iPod, Everything is, I, I say, I look like a, an Apple merchandise stand. <laughs> Which is quite depressing, but you know, what can I do? So this is an iPod with a little application. I used to, uh, well, first I have to set up the... I, I, I... Andrea is wearing a headset, like the kind that people use to play video games. She's sitting at her computer with an iPod touch in her right hand. This is a simple way. So I have simple, just a simple low tone, right? So if I move it like this, I, I change the pitch, okay? So, and then if I do like this, is the direct result of... She twists and bends her arm, manipulating the sine wave into a complex pattern. And I can do the same if I have my voice. Then she flicks on her mic. That's my voice. So, you know, it's quite dramatic. (laughs) Maybe for somebody who is not a lot in music, it seems harsh. I don't think that this is harsh at all. This is just the way new music is going. I do believe that even though I don't think that what we do now is better than what was done in the Renaissance, okay, I do believe that there is constant change and artistic languages keep having a need of refreshing themselves, okay? Yeah. Why do you think, uh, why do you think music is shifting in that direction towards these? To explore timbre. Because now, thanks to the technology, we have access to it. It's easier to manipulate. So we are, we are human. I think that we are like kids. We are we like playing. It's like I compare it to the beginning of the Baroque, where they became aware of chords, of verticality, and then for 300 years they explored that. 
Andrea's grandiosity reminds me of the document that inspired this project. In 1913, a young painter named Luigi Russolo wrote a letter to a composer that he admired. The two of them were part of an Italian movement known as Futurism. Russolo's letter ended up as one of the movement's major manifestos, the Art of Noises. In the Art of Noises, Russolo laid out a framework for the music of the new industrial world, in which the city itself is both the inspiration and the instrument. For centuries, life went by in silence. Amidst the dearth of noises, the first sounds that a man drew from a pierced reed or a stretched string were regarded with amazement. The result was music, a fantastic world superimposed on the real one. We futurists have deeply loved and enjoyed the harmonies of the great masters. Now we are satiated and find far more enjoyment in the combination of the noises of trams, backfiring motors, carriages, and falling crowds than in rehearsing the eroica of the pastoral. We cannot much longer restrain our desire to finally create a new musical reality with a generous distribution of resonance slaps in the face. I am no musician, and I have therefore no acoustical predilections, nor any works to defend. I am a futurist painter, using a much loved art to project my determination to renew everything. And so, bolder than a professional musician could be, unconcerned by my apparent incompetence, and convinced that all rights and possibilities open up to the daring, I am able to initiate the great renewal of music by means of the art of noises. It is, and I am one to talk, very pretentious. And yet I kind of sympathize with the guy. When I started making a podcast, I was intent on remaking a whole sector of journalism with my own bold incompetence. A man of his word, Luigi built these giant boxes called the Intona Rumori, whose purpose was to make a bunch of noise. A photo of them often accompanies the art of noises, and you can see Russolo standing behind them, this thin guy with a mustache. Like most manifestos, the art of noises says very little about its writer, except what he wanted to be, a great destroyer come to remake the world. If you're a certain type of young person, that idea is very attractive, and you tend to embrace it without really thinking about what else you might have to put to the side just to achieve that. Um, what's your, because I know you've done a lot of work with visuals, audio and visual, so... Well, that's with my ex-husband, <laughs> so that's Greg whom I met in Poland. It comes from video, from cinema. We had a duo, eventually, I sort of stopped doing my own to work for our duo, which worked, which we worked together like for 10 years. So Greg did the images and I did the sound and we work on interactivity. And then we split, <laughs> so now I work just with sound. <laughs> How is your music different working uh, with your ex-husband than working after? Working with your ex-husband? Well, we, because we sort of, the main goal of our duo was to have real-time interaction between uh, the images and the sound. So we, uh, if there was something on stage, like a movement or, or, or whatever, it had simultaneously a result in both the images and the sound. So that was very interesting and very powerful um, again, from the perception point of view, but it gave some rigidity. So now that I don't have 
to interact, you know, the interaction is not so important, I have much more freedom to on, to on the wall do, you know, just to improvise. It's like much, much, much more freedom. One of the first people that I ever met who was interested in experimental music was Ron Lassard. I'm standing at the counter in Weirdo Records one afternoon, talking with Angela Sawyer again. She's telling me how she first got involved with the experimental scene, just after she started at UMass Lowell in the early 90s. I had never been to New England at all. I just flew here on a plane from Denver. And I wanted to meet some people, and I didn't really know what to do. And I heard some other kids saying that they wanted to join the college radio station. I'd never even heard of that, but it sounded cool, so I went to a meeting. And they said at the meeting, like, the thing that you have to do to join up is you have to show up and volunteer. And I went back the next day, and there was no one there. How long were you there for? Probably an hour. (laughs) Finally, someone came by, and I don't even know who it was, but I just was like, hey, hey, you know, I'm here to volunteer. What should I do? And they just looked at me like I had three heads. And they were like, well, I don't know. I'm not in charge, you know. And I was like, well, what would you do? And they were like, why don't you clean something? So I found a vacuum, and I just started vacuuming. And finally, I got to a room that I hadn't been in yet, and there was a person in there, and it was kind of dark in there. So I waited for him to notice me, and I said, hi, I, you know, I'm new, I, I'm trying to vacuum everywhere. Is it okay if I bring a vacuum in here? I had no idea that it was the air studio. And um, Ron, of course, he's like a firecracker going off. So he's just like, oh, yes, come on in. He was miking the vacuum cleaner, and I'm just kind of like, oh, hi. And he was just like, tell me about yourself. Who are you? And uh, uh, he was really awesome to me. As we walk down memory lane, Angela moves on to describing a world that fascinated me when I first moved to Boston. The community of experimental artists who'd suddenly connected in the early days of the internet, after decades of being little feudal kingdoms. There was definitely this feeling at one point where you felt like there was a first worldwide, at least, community, if not worldwide, of people who were listening to the same releases and they were seeing the same bands. They had heard some Throb and Gristle records, and they had a common language, and they were finding out about cool stuff and like figuring out how it worked, and they knew what happened when you stuck a clarinet underwater and put delay on it. I've been thinking a lot about what Angela said at the Crank Sturgeon Show, about choosing to live on the island of misfit toys without thinking about it very hard, because I feel, in a lot of ways, that that has become my life. Even though I'm more devoted now than ever to completing the work I set out for myself, I also feel more unhappy and more isolated. Like every town has the person who is like, you know, I'll become the nun, I'll sacrifice myself and, you know, do all this work and do all this and you'll like me for that. Uh, You know, I have a story, that's what I do. Can you talk a bit about sacrificing yourself for becoming a martyr for the scene, in a sense? I'm not trying to do that. Um, I actually really dislike that. Uh, How How did you fall into the role? Um, well, I'm just, that's really natural. It's an easy role. Um, you know, if you have some job related to underground music, that's what you're doing. Because there's no money. You know, like, that's, it's just an automatic. Um, but that's one of the only ways that you can spend your whole life surrounded by it. 
everything that I know about politics and geography and sociology and psychology and sort of how to deal with the world at large, I mostly learn them from records. I think of every record as like a pair of tinted glasses and you can look at the whole world through that and see it in a new way. And each good record has a slightly different shade on it. So you never get done kind of figuring out how things work and, you know, enjoying it in, in new wrinkles and how things are. Um, the bad news is that if you take the glasses off, things look terrible. Then you have to function like a regular person. And that's not something I'm very good at. If I'm being honest, neither am I. I avoided revisiting these interviews for almost five years because they held up a mirror to the shaky logic I was building my ambitions on. They pointed out, in no uncertain terms, that art cannot save me. It can help me find a way to save myself by learning to communicate things that I feel deeply in a way that's truthful, accurate, and honest. But that's all it can do. And it took losing someone I loved very much to understand that. Shane Broderick and I stand on the sidewalk of Somerville Avenue on a cool spring evening. He's just finished telling me the story about the time he punched a club owner at a venue up the block. As we're going on about the reputation that two dead sluts, one good fuck, had amongst Boston's club owners, some of Shane's friends emerge from the bar where he's just finished a gig. It's funny because we never actually gave any of the venues our actual performance. It was more like basement parties and shit like that that they were scared of that they heard about that's fine and um if you i don't remember if i got this on tape last time would you mind describing what the actual performances were can't really do that i don't know you can ask these guys what's that you got a letter i just realized i left my backpack down there and i got good beer in there i don't have a letter I fuck that shit would you guys mind describing to me uh, what a normal show by Two Dead Sluts, One Good Fuck was like? He's Is this an interview? He's I'm interviewing thing him. I wasn't ready for was... an interview, man. I can't do that. It's, my voice cannot yeah. be heard on tape. <laughs> it's like this. He's making a jerk-off motion. It's like looking at something and getting so excited and just BAM! <laughs> and then it's kind of like, oh, Fuck. I don't have a lighter. No, do we you need to go home. <laughs> you need to hide under do a blanket. Do you have a lighter, buddy? <laughs> nah, I'm sorry. Motherfucker. How can you do an interview without a lighter? <laughs> Fuck. Amateur. So, just so I don't take up the rest of your time, there was something you said during the last interview. You said that um, for TDS, it was like there was this joke that you guys, like once when the joke stopped being funny, you guys were like, all right, I'm going to do something else. Um, Throughout these interviews, the joke didn't stop being funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, okay, I'm this not guy, sure the joke ever stopped being funny. So, what? Continue. In, in your in your opinion, what was the joke? The band was the joke. <laughs> what specifically uh, about the band was the joke? I don't know. 
Do a funny voice. Come on. What the fuck? Yeah, cartoon character. We're, we're supposed to be entertained by this. All right, you, can't put you can me cut my voice like here. It doesn't matter what you say as long as it's um, a funny voice is cool. There are a lot of Boston noise bands and people from Jamaica Plain and Austin, and they want everyone to be like on board with, hey, I. We're all friends. This is a scene. Come on, like, come down to our house, play a show, blah, blah, blah. And what Two Dead Sluts was more like was just like, we're not even invited. We're playing a show. We're trashing your fucking house. Do you ever miss it? Yeah, of course I do. It is what it is. I feel like that's a pretty good place to end. I begin to walk off into the night. A block away, I come to a stop on a concrete island in the middle of Somerville Avenue to look back at Shane and his friends. They're still down by the bench we were sitting on, drunk, being loud. But now, their noise is drowned out by the noise of the cars flying past me, headed for the outskirts of Boston. Standing here, it occurs to me that I need room tone, the sound of the place that I'm in. Room tone helps smooth out transitions in editing, makes a radio documentary sound more natural. I've forgotten to get it for almost every other interview with the noise artists. But that I remember now seems significant to me. I promise to myself that someday I'm going to figure out what made this experience worth telling. You've been listening to Stories About Music. Today's episode was produced with help from Wes Boudreaux and Samira Winter. Editing help by Kana Doles and John Davies. Special thanks today to Lashovka and Freund, Jacob Rizzotti, Sean Coleman, Alyssa Fredine, Brittany Rizzo, Tyler Carmody, and Birgit from Denmark. Visit our website, investigatingregionalscenes.org, for more episodes and, this summer at least, some bonus material. You can find Stories About Music on your local podcast provider please leave us a review to help us find new listeners. From Philadelphia, I'm Brendan Maddox, back soon with more stories about music.